Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. This afternoon, January 23rd, to the Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs, it's always a pleasure to see a large audience. First thing we ask is that you turn off your cell phones so that we don't disturb the speaker. Thank you. Today's session is being recorded by Shaw TV. And remember that it's on the TV on Sunday at 4.30 in the afternoon. We want to thank the University of Lethbridge, Shaw TV, Country Kitchen Catering for our lunches, and the, the coverage from all the media, including Lethbridge Herald, who publicize our SAKPA events. Lunch is $11. Please put it into the basket and have someone at your table count it. Remember that SAKPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and it relies on contributions from members and session attenders to continue its work. Today's format will be the usual. From 12 to 12.30, we'll have our speaker. 12.30 to 1, lunch. And then question period from 1 to 1.30. It's my pleasure today to introduce one of our young Right, up-and-coming entrepreneurs, Kelsey Prenvo, who is president and CEO of Kyoto Fuels Corporation, which owns and operates the largest biodiesel facility in Canada. He graduated from the University of Victoria with a BSc in biology and a minor in biochemistry and microbiology. He has over 12 years experience in the biotechnology sector working with the University of Victoria, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, as well as the University of Alberta on projects varying from the development of genetically modified crops, cattle genotyping, plant and animal pathology, and the investigation into the nature of bovine, spongiform, and cephalopathy. He now devotes his energies to producing economically viable and environmentally environmentally sustainable business initiatives. Mr. Penavo was a director for Prairie Biogas and Power Limited, a company using a proprietary technology to produce syngas from waste materials for both heat and electrical production. He is also vice president of the Western Canada Biodiesel Association that promotes the use and production of biodiesel in Western Canada. Can you hear me okay? He served on the Clean Air Strategic Alliance Renewable and Alternatives team. He helped develop the Alberta Renewable Fuels Standard in conjunction with the Alberta Department of Energy and stakeholders of the petroleum industry, which places a requirement for 120 million liters of biodiesel into the province. His collective experience in the biofuels industry over the past 10 years includes $70 million in grant and incentive writing, and over $40 million in equity and debt financing. 
Let's all welcome Mr. Prenevaux to our meeting today. Thank you very much for the uh, introductions, and it's always a pleasure to speak to a full room, um, and a pleasure always uh, to be involved with SACPA. Um, actually, I, I gave a talk to SACPA, and I think it's numbering now in, in six or seven years ago when we first started looking at some of the uh, opportunities behind Biodiesel. So what I want to tell you today, and the story that I want to give you today is uh, about biofuels, uh, where it is presently from a biodiesel perspective. And, primarily from my company's perspective, and where is it going to, and, and some of the reasons that I have that it's sustainable and having some solid effect. So I really want to demonstrate to you that we're having some solid effect on, on what's going on out there, uh, but we've got a long way to go, and that what we've done so far could be classified very simply as a baby step. Even though what I'm, some of the numbers that I'm going to throw at you seem huge, I have to take this from a world perspective when you look at it. And then we'll talk a little bit about the future, where biofuels are going to go, and, and how they're going to be involved in the mix of the fuel pool that we have right now in both North America and the world. So a little bit about my company, Kyoto Fuels Corporation, located here in Leckridge, um, is a 66 million liter facility. It's a $40 million build. It's all privately held by about uh, uh, 78 shareholders, uh, seven of which sit on the board of directors, and a company about 75% of the investment. So some seven very solid uh, entrepreneurs with um, some wild ideas, if you want to call it. Since we've been involved in this project for about 10 years, if I would have been sitting on the stage and said that we put $40 million into biodiesel 10 years ago, you might have thought I was crazy. But uh, at the end of this, maybe I'm not so crazy, maybe I am, but I'll let you make that determination. So we commissioned this last year, which means now we're in operations. We are producing fuels. It's been a long road for us. But uh, so are the ways of, of new technologies and, and new ideas. They take time and take effort and take some patience. But we have commissioned our facility, which means we can produce the biofuels that are saleable out there on the market right now. And uh, I'm very happy to have that um, done and, and accomplished. So I'm going to speak a little bit of the chemistry, but I'm not going to not going to bore you. But uh, how we make biodiesel is we can take vegetable oils or waste greases, such as waste animal fats canola, soybean oil, you name it, we can turn that material into biodiesel. And we do a process called transesterification, which takes the oil, takes a little bit of methanol, a little lye, and turns that into biodiesel on another co-product called glycerin. And glycerin has many uses as well, such as hair products. I love making that joke considering my genetics. But um, it has lots of other sort of byproducts as well. It acts as a great dust suppressant on roads and is environmentally benign. So that means it has no toxicity at all. So when we produce 1,000 liters of, of vegetable oil, we take in 1,000 liters of vegetable oil, we produce 1,000 liters of biodiesel, plus the 10% chemical products that we use turn into 10% glycerin. So effectively, we pull in, say, 1,100 liters of, of material, we produce 1,100 liters of product. So Kyoto Fuels does not produce any waste besides wastewaters. All of our materials we put in, end up as a product. So it's a very environmentally sustainable aspect when it comes down to production and very, very low waste. So that's more importantly than what I wanted to get at. So our feedstocks, the materials that we make out of, consist of canola primarily in, in southern Alberta because we have such a large volume of that material right now. And if, if you 
are in the agricultural business and pay attention to canola, you probably know that this year was a record crop. We produced 18 million metric tons of that material. If you were to crush every bit of that, that would be 8 billion liters of material available for biodiesel production. Um, that's one aspect of what we produce. We can also take materials that are waste fats, such as pork grease, chicken grease, beef grease, any of those materials that are waste products at this point, turn that into biodiesel as well. So not all plants can do that. It's a little tougher to turn that animal fat into biodiesel, but we can do both. So uh, there's about 230 million liters of that material available in the province. So we've got lots of material to make this up. And that might mean that we've got lots of room, but by the time I'm done, you'll see that the room's actually printed kind of slim. That we need to look at alternatives to how we make our biodiesel. But I think the larger question is, why did we do this? And again, if I had this conversation years ago and I, I did, I was accused of being crazy and insane and, and uh, not paying attention to what was going on, but if you look at what's happened, I'm, I'm glad to be involved with some folks who did have the foresight to see what was going to happen in a 10-year period and, and actually be on the cusp of something unique. So we wanted to provide two things to the people, those 78 people that had got involved with us. We obviously wanted to provide them a return on their investment because they're looking for that, they're investors. And we also want to provide them a return on the environment. So we did a lot of focus on ensuring that our process was going to be top-notch, and at the end of the day, it was going to have a measurable effect on the environment. And if I'm going to focus on one aspect of that, I'm going to focus on carbon emissions. And we'll talk about that, input, uh, that impact that Kyoto Fuels has had, but that's a big one. That's a really good measurement of our environmental performance is carbon, uh, carbon emissions. The other thing that we knew is that we had to start changing. We were producing a lot of carbon emissions, we knew that. We had an idea of just how much fuel that we use internationally, and we knew that we had to look at alternatives. In order to get this done though, we needed some backing. We needed to make sure that we had somebody looking out for our interests, somebody making sure that we had the same vision. And of course, that all comes back to the government. So the government, in conversations with them and both looking at the United States, implemented what was called a renewable fuel standard. And what that states is that every liter of diesel fuel sold in Alberta on road must contain 2% renewable content. That means if you drive a diesel vehicle, you've already tried biodiesel, this has been in operation since 2011, and the province has been running biodiesel throughout its systems since that time frame. It's a good idea on their part, because the United States implemented the same thing, to a much larger scale because they use a lot more diesel fuel than we do. So the United States is at about 2%, which means that they're at about 4.5 billion liter requirement this year in 2013. So we're not talking about a small industry anymore. This is a big industry, an industry here to stay. Nationally, we also have a renewable fuel standard at 600 million liters. So there's a huge demand for this product. A lot of material needs to be developed in order to go into our systems to make sure that we can have this. So that's good. That's good news. But... What effect does that truly have on the environment? What can we measure and how can we measure it? Well, one of the things just to point out that is some more good news is in 2013, that demand in Alberta and in Western Canada, the end up about 330 million liters from, say, British Columbia to Manitoba, was all satisfied with imports besides for about 10 million liters produced out of Saskatchewan. All the rest of that material was imported out of the United States. So now, with the two plants that are operational in, in Alberta, the ADM plant, which is actually larger than Kilo Fuels now, and Kilo Fuels, we can satisfy all of Western Canadian demand with Alberta products and with Alberta bodies, which is very important from 
I think a multitude of perspectives. So what did the government want out of this? Why did they back this? They didn't back us because they liked us. They backed us, well, they did like us, but there was another reason and several reasons why they backed us. One is that they wanted a diversification of their energy production. We all know that Alberta is a massive producer of fuels. We do know that we've got a bit of a black eye from that perspective on how we do that. So the government wanted to ensure that they looked at both sides of that coin and they could produce and, and spur on industries that would produce clean fuels such as biodiesel. So they spent a great deal of impetus and drive towards making sure that happens, including having um, the only carbon trading system in Canada exists in Alberta, which is quite unique when you consider the other side of that coin. And they also have support programs to ensure success of biodiesel companies such as ADM and Kyoto Fuels. They also saw the writing on the wall. They knew the United States was running with this. So they ran with it as well, more than any other province did. Um, by far the greatest producer of biodiesel in Canada now is Alberta, as of this year. But they wanted to make sure that they knew there was a measurement to that success. How did they measure that? They looked at how much carbon emissions each plant was reducing. And they knew that there's accepted values for how much carbon emissions reductions were occurring through biodiesel production. So how do we measure that? Well, it turns out that scientifically accepted and, and done a thousand times over and debated in many, many arguments that I've had and back and forth, but finally accepted is that biodiesel reduces carbon emissions by about 90% when you compare that to petroleum diesel. So how do we figure that out? Well, if you're making petroleum diesel, it's easy to figure. You drill a hole, if you use a conventional methodology, so you pull the fuel out, you make diesel fuel out of it, burn it, it goes up. So any carbon stored that was underground is now in the atmosphere. So it's a linear effect, straight out of the ground, straight into the air. And if you can see this graph, which maybe you can or can't, what biodiesel does by difference is we produce, say, from the feedstocks. We get our process done where we transport the material to our facility, we process it into biodiesel, we then put it into distribution, and in this case we put it into an airplane, which is not quite there yet, but you burn it, and then that carbon dioxide goes back in the atmosphere, but those plants that you made it from then take it up again through photosynthesis. So you end up reducing the carbon impact, you end up in a cycle, as opposed to in a linear effect. So the reductions are measurable. And the measurements are very scientific, they've been uh, calculated over many years, and are very precise. The company that um, does those measurements runs a program called GHG Genius, which is Greenhouse Gas Genius, very unique name. And any company that produces biodiesel is audited in order to make sure that they are producing these carbon credits. And what they do to audit us is they measure the amount of energy that we use to produce the biofuels, as opposed to that 90% that we save. So we have to subtract any natural gas, electricity, transportation that we utilize in order to make sure we've got that energy input that we needed. That's why it's not 100%. And then we measure that against the energy we save on the amount of carbon dioxide emissions. The auditing groups are twofold. So this is how complicated it gets is we first have an, an engineering group called Climate Check that comes in and, and audits all our books, and they submit that into Price Waterhouse. Price Waterhouse Coopers, you're probably familiar with that group, they're one of the largest auditing firms in Canada. So they actually audit our books to ensure that we've got precise measurements on how much electricity we've used, how much natural gas we've used, how much transportation distances we are at, so the diesel fuel is accounted for, and where the biodiesel ends up, so that's also um, accrued. And we make sure that we have an understanding of exactly how much carbon dioxide has been reduced by the production of biodiesel. Does that all make sense? Everybody following so far? 
So it's it's very strict, very strict under that protocol. We are in the same audit process. If anybody's been involved in the company and had an audit, every time you hear that word, everyone's eyes do the same thing. They roll back. Oh God, here comes the audit. And it's the same thing from a carbon perspective. You have to have all your numbers in your books because you are signing off that whatever is there is true. So it's a, it's quite a, a, a difficult process, but a necessary process to ensure from the government's perspective that what we've produced is true to and true to form. So how are we doing then? Um, sorry, previous slide. How are we doing as, as far as an industry goes? Um, I think I had a previous slide there that suggested that Kyoto Fuels, and if I missed it, Kyoto Fuels reduces our greenhouse gas impacts by about 160,000 metric tons per year at full production. That's the equivalent of pulling 35, 39,000 cars off the road per year as far as their impact. And I looked it up, Lethbridge has about 70,000 registered vehicles, so our one little plant on 10 acres of land is the same effect pulling off half the cars off the road in this town. So a significant effect. If you look at our industry in the whole, if you add up the Canadian and the U.S. production of biodiesel, we're at nearly 5 billion liters. That's a 12 million metric ton reduction, or the equivalent of pulling 3 million cars off the road annually. And that's all measured by the same systems the United States and Canada. That's a significant effect. That's a fantastic news story, especially when I started out this industry in 2003, there were 30 million liters of biodiesel production. So this industry has literally taken off and flown off with wings in 10 years. And it will be there in the future, and, and we all believe that, not just from an industry perspective, but the petroleum industry also believes it will be there in a long-term perspective. So this is great, right? This is fantastic. We've got this huge effect, and uh, we've really got legs, and it's, it's going really well. So I can pull my pom-poms out and shake for a while until I start to show you just what that effect is. It's a baby step. When we look at the entire volume of fuel used in North America and the world, 2% in both the United States and Canada, we're not even quite there yet with our production. So when we talk about diesel fuel use in North America, we're talking about 250 billion liters per year. So we're not even touching the envelope yet. And we're, we're already using 5 billion liters of, of biofeedstocks in order to get that done. We've got a lot of work to do here. So what I really wanted to break out for you is, is look at how much work we have to do and look at the future of our fuel use. And a really good um, source that I found for that was from ExxonMobil, and I recommend if you, you get a chance to look this up. It's called The Outlook for Energy, a view of 2040. And what it does is it describes the amount of fuel use. Now remember, this is just transportation fuels. I'm not talking about the energy requirements that we have in order to produce electricity or heat or anything like that. I'm only talking about transportation use, and I'm not including South America or Africa. I'm only including Asia and Pacific, North America, and Europe in this perspective. And look at the value. I'm talking about, in this graph, millions of oil equivalent barrels per day. Okay? Now, if we look at that, North America, the good news on North America and Europe is those lines are flat. So you're looking at the top of the graph. The top of the graph doesn't go anywhere. It says by 2004, and uh, 40, if you, if you believe what Exxon has to say, is that biodiesel, that small little strip there that's above the orange strip, will be involved, ethanol will be involved, but we'll start to plateau. We won't start to use a lot more uh, fuels because we're getting better. We're starting to do things better. We're getting better at our energy efficiencies. We're producing biofuels. So we're starting to reduce that. Not the same with Asia and the Pacific. You can see that they dramatically increase from about 10 million barrels per day to 25 million. 
which is a massive increase in the usage. And the reason's quite obvious. They want the same lifestyle that you and I have enjoyed. They don't have that yet, but they're starting to get the reserves in order to do that. The impact is massive. Now, when you look at that, you start to back away. you got some good news and bad news in there, you can realize that North America is doing better, and so is, is Europe, but Asia wants to really increase their usage. So let's add that up. If we say that Asia's about 10 million, and um, North America's about 15, Europe's about 10, that's about 35. I'm being conservative. You can see it was quite a bit higher than that, especially in future years. So we're talking a 2014 snapshot. Each barrel contains 158 liters per barrel. So per use per day is 5.5 billion liters of oil per day. Or, conservatively, if I'm not considering South America and Africa, 2 trillion liters of fuel a year. So the problem and the issue really stands is that we are reliant on fuel. There's, there's little doubt of that. We're reliant on it through our society. And before we turn around, and I hear a lot of people say, well, it's the oil company's fault. Who's driving the cars? Who's making the vehicles? We have to look at the total impact. We are the consumers. We're part of the problem, and we're part of the solution based on our choices. But at the end of the day, what I'm suggesting here is there's a lot of work that needs to be done. If we want to pin this as being part of the, the aspect that we need to fix, we've got a 2 trillion liter problem. So on 5 billion liters in North America, I'm very impressed, and I'm, I'm impressed with my industry's ability to react over 10 years, but the amount of work that needs to be done is astronomical. But that's how you get there, is first you have to have the dream and you have to realize that it's better than doing nothing. It's better than sitting around and saying, well, that's incomprehensible. I can't even think of a trillion number. You have to start somewhere and you have to take those baby steps. And there's a lot of work that needs to get done in that process, but it's better than facing the consequences of our inaction. Because certainly, scientists have now proved that there is an effect from humans producing carbon dioxide. There's no doubt of that. And we are going to be facing some of those challenges. We have no choice now. There will be effects from how we've produced the carbon dioxide. We will have um, reductions of our, our land bases that we have because of flooding on the, on the coast. That is going to happen. Um, how we react to that is going to be part of the lesson. Um, but we can affect some of those changes, and we're going to have to eventually because we can't keep up two trillion liters forever. We have to start looking at alternatives. So where does the biodiesel industry go? How do we start challenging this and, and you know this huge astronomical problem where you start? Well, the good news is places like Kyoto have their base done. They can produce fuels from, say, typical crops like canola. But from our aspect, we want to look at the future as being different crops, crops that have better uh, production values and even lower carbon intensities to get better and better. So if I have a look at a few of the, the dryland crops that we have interest in, there's a variety of them that produce higher levels than canola. And you'll see in a future slide here that uh, canola produces about 1,000 liters per hectare of biodiesel for production, so that's a good starting point, where some of these produce two to three times that value, or even are just have less impact from an environmental perspective. So what I mean by that, excuse me, what I mean by that is, is saying it, it takes less energy to produce the crop. For example, camelina is a close relative of canola, but it takes less, um, less energy in order to uh, make that crop uh, function, so that you can actually have less uh, uh, pesticides applied to that crop, you can have uh, less energy use in, on, in order to make that crop. So it, it increases the amount of carbon dioxide emissions reductions that we get per acre. And that's really the drive. 
Unfortunately, a lot of these crops that have really high oil production cannot be produced in Canada unless we really get a lot of global warming because they produce in warm climates. But they produce a lot of, of, of more feedstock for us to utilize, and there might be opportunities for us to develop these in, in other nations for our use. Well, that's not the big, the pinnacle change, if you want to call it the Rubicon event. Um, the, the, the animal that we're looking at to do that is algae. So let's suggest that some of the crops that I showed you were are not too far away. As a matter of fact, Yofields is involved with one group to start producing 25,000 acres of a crop this year. So looking at that planting occurring right now in order to get that, that material in place. So we're talking about something that would be an industry size that could supply all of Kyoto fuels being several years away, not too far. But when we look at um, replacement of the diesel fuel in Alberta, that's a big, big requirement. It's going to mean a lot of biomass, more than we have available in canola. So I pointed out there that bumper crop this year, 18 million metric tons, that's only 8 billion liters. Alberta, or sorry, uh, nationally we use 25 billion liters. We're not even close to being able to supply that with what we have. So other ones, this is the big one, and unfortunately about 10, 15 years away is algae is 1,050 times more effective for me than, than producing uh, bio oil than, than canola is. So 50,000 liters per hectare. If you were to carve out a chunk of space and you can put this anywhere if you want to grow an algae basis. Maybe you put on compromised lands that we've already broken down from some of our other oil exploration. If you had a 60 by 60 parcel, which is actually not that big when you think about it, you could supply all of Canada's needs on diesel, 25 billion liters, in a 60 by 60 parcel. That's not a lot of land. The unfortunate part about it right now is that production of, of algae oil is expensive and it requires some, some help. Whenever you get about Oh, 60, 70 million organisms in one little spot together that are all genetically identical. Something always happens. Nature finds a way, and that genetic identity suddenly changes, and you have problems. So there's lots of work to be done in order to get here, but this is where we see eventually going to, is, is getting algae to work and starting to really having a massive replacement basis on, on the amount of fuel they're using and moving away from petroleum as a whole. Certainly, I've focused on biodiesel, but just as uh, some of the other uh, aspects that we play with, cellulosic ethanol. Cellulose is the most popular um, molecule out there, likely the, the fabric that you're in front of when you look at your, uh, um, your, your serving wear and like is made from, uh, made from cellulose. So any sort of plant-based material is cellulose. So we've got an endless bumper crop of material to produce and actually replace those two trillion liters of material if we could use cellulose as part of our fuel. And these plants actually exist, so there is actually the, this is not science fiction, there are plants out there that uses enzymes to break down cellulose from sugars, those sugars are turned into ethanol and that ethanol is supplied to the market. Two problems, one is those plants are about twice as much capitally, so a, say a 66 million liter biodiesel plant, I told you mine costs 40 million dollars, a 66 million uh, liter uh, cellulitic ethanol plant would cost $120 million and would have to compete against me directly. So that's why you don't see a lot of them. They're very capitally intensive and difficult to produce right now. But we can't let this go. This has to be some of the, the foundations of what we look to in the future. And it will get better. Capital costs will come down and unfortunately, you don't want to hear this, but it's going to happen. Fuel prices will go up, making these projects more and more um, viable. So we have to look at this. We have to hang on to this, unfortunately, right now, because it's not making a lot of money, a lot of this technology being sold off and uh, going to other countries as opposed to being staying here in Canada where it belongs. 
So just in closing, biofuels is a part of this solution. If we want to kind of drive down what we're doing to the environment and reduce that carbon impact, it is certainly a part of that. It is a significant part of it, but as you can tell, we need a lot more influence in order to make sure that we can get better. It is not a silver bullet. There is no such thing. We all need to make some changes in order to make sure that we reduce that impact and we start reducing the amount of fuels that we're dependent on. There's three big areas in there. Um, one of them is certainly efficiency, and you can really see some of the effects and changes over the last 10 years. I'd really like to pick on the automobile industry, if I can for a minute, and look back at 2003 and remember some of the commercials on television as I'm watching hockey. Um, I won't see a team I like, but as I'm watching hockey games, you'd always see it's always a <laughs> big SUV and, you know, and the more and more capacities, big cars, and this love of the big vehicle that we had at that time. And no one ever mentioned the gas mileage in those commercials. But you knew it. You looked it up, and it was like three miles. Holy smokes, these massive numbers that these things produced. Today, 2013, 2014, go watch a hockey game. Every commercial that has a vehicle on it will display its MPG. Everyone. Why? Because the consumer has changed. Not just from an environmental perspective. They've also seen the fuel prices go and say, well, I don't want a huge SUV that's going to drink gasoline because I'm going to pay for it. I don't want that. I want efficient cars. I want hybrid cars. I want better cars. And, you know, I'm not a lover of, of potentially sports cars. And being a, a partial environmentalist or realist, I certainly can't be seen driving a sports car. But I saw the new uh, Corvette Stingray. Has anyone seen that thing? Wow. I mean, that thing is pretty. You know, beautiful design, really nice car. And I thought, geez, you know, if I was a sports advocate, I'd go after that thing. Six liters per 100 kilometers. 40 liters? 40 miles per gallon off a sports car that could do 0 to 60 in under 4 seconds? Suddenly, you're the guy driving with the sunglasses down the road as an environmentalist. Things are changing. So it's good. I mean, we are, we are starting to change. So we have, there is aspects. The other thing that we need to get to, and I see I'm running short of time, is alternative energies. I haven't even touched base on electrical production. We use largely coal and natural gas for that. There are all alternatives to that as well, and they are being developed and being implemented where we can start using different biomasses or other materials as long as we can make sure that in the day that whatever's coming off the stacks in those materials is cleaner than what we're doing with, with petroleum. That has to be part of that equation. That when we can do that, there's alternative energy productions as well. There's solar panel. There's wind energies. The rest of these things have to be part of that equation. And then biochemicals themselves. We seem to have this thought process in our society that all our plastics must come from petroleum. No. Petroleum is just a couple hundred million year old crop. We could use our existing crops this year to produce bioplastics and other sort of chemicals that we use typically that are from, from, uh, uh, from petroleum sources. And it's up to us as the consumer to start pushing on those projects, uh, products to make sure that they're widely accepted. A good example is if you go into a paint store, you'll see a lot of these now are low VOC paints. A lot of these paints are actually made from canola products or soy-based oils as opposed to petroleum. And you, a lot of the packaging you'll see if you go into Safeway, and you know, of course, if you don't want to use a plastic bag, that's one thing, but some of the plastic bags and some of the containers are actually made with cornstarch. And they're just as clear and just as nice as the other plastic, and the differences they break down. So there's lots of differences and changes that we can make, and biofuels is one of those portions of solutions. It is working, it is coming along, but at the end of the day, we've got a lot of work to do. So thank you very much. I have to tell you, uh, my name is Bev Mundell-Atherstone, and I'm the moderator. I forgot to tell you that. And uh, Henning and I were able to tour 
uh, Kyoto Fuels, the plant right here in Lethbridge a couple of weeks ago, and he's got all kinds of environmental standards in the fuel in the plant as well. Okay, it's time for lunch. Make sure you discuss what good questions you're going to bring to the podium in half an hour. Thank you. <laughs>